0: Hey, everybody. To celebrate our 300th episode, we're going to go live to the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn on Friday, March 16th. We've got special guests Blake Schwarzenbach from Jawbreaker, Brian Baker, Minor Threat and Bad Religion, and Laura Stevenson. It's going to be a blast. If you want to go, there's links to buy tickets on our website, (laughs) GoingOfftrack.com.
1: Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. Going off
0: track. The podcast where we vary from what you would normally expect. And then go back to it. And then stay there for a minute. (laughs) And then sometimes we go a little bit off track again. Exactly. Where are we now? Are
1: we on track? You know, it's funny. We originally wanted to call this podcast Off Track. Yeah. And it was taken. Off Track. And... I think going off track is a better name, but at the time, I didn't really like it that much. Too long, I thought. Seemed, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah. But now it's... It fits. It fits. It fits. You know, if the shoe fits, right? Yeah, that's what they say. (laughs) Or in the case of today's guest, if the Doc Martin fits...
0: If the Doc Martin fits, yeah. Today we've, Which a, it did fit quite well. We have a very, <laughs>
1: a very stylish guest on the podcast today. Indeed. Someone uh, I have been trying to get to get on the show for a very, very long time. Uh, an old friend, uh, Arthur Smilios. Yes. Uh, me and Brad were just talking about Arthur's last name uh, because I, I've known him a long time, but I've never said his last name out loud. Right. And I know it, but yeah. It's, it's fun, funny. It's funny how you have people like that where you're like... How often do you say people's first names like in conversation? Not that much.
0: You I mean last names?
1: Last names. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Loopy. I need a latte or something. Yeah, probably. I think maybe I maybe cookie. had too much. Maybe a Girl Scout cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you want Girl Scout cookies, hit up Brad. Yeah, Actually, uh, yeah, I do. You should be using Go this podcast. Going, why
0: didn't I do it? Yeah, com slash cookies. You can buy Girl Scout
1: cookies from my daughter. Is that a real... That's a real link? I, I put it up, yeah. You did? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to support Brad's kids, com slash cookies. Supports the Girl Scouts. Supports the Girl Scouts. All of them. Yeah. And Brad's kids. <laughs> uh, today on the podcast, yes, you may know Arthur from uh, his newest band, World Be Free. You might know him from Token Entry. You might know him from Civ. Or you may know him as... From the pre-co- precursor to Civ Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the most legendary hardcore bands ever. Oh, yeah. And uh, in this podcast, we talked a lot about the making of Start Today. One of, probably my favorite hardcore record and probably most people's favorite hardcore record. It's pretty good. Um, yes. So we talked a lot about recording. We talked a lot about uh talked about so much stuff on this podcast arthur is such a arthur gr-
0: talks quickly too he talks so quickly and he's a, lot in. <laughs> he's a
1: very good storyteller and uh the whole t- the whole time this podcast happened i was like i can't believe we even had arthur on sooner yeah like we've talked about it we've gone back and forth for years and uh i'm so glad it worked out because yeah aside from being like a someone who played on all these legendary hardcore records he also is just a super fun and interesting guy and uh
0: it's I too d- bad that we couldn't talk more about, you know, like just specific instruments and stuff. Cause <laughs> I'm always curious, like, what kind of what guitar people play. Yeah, he
1: doesn't seem to really care about P basses <laughs> or Fender. Or yeah. what particular model There's played. some gear talk, and, uh, <laughs> and we went really long on this one. So if, if all the gear talk doesn't make the cut to this podcast you're hearing, uh, it will definitely make it into one of our Patreon outtake uh, sections because yeah. it's too good not to put out there. So
0: if you want to hear some serious gear talk, Go to patreon.com slash Going Off Track and join the team. Join, join the, the team. team, man.
1: It's true. But uh,
0: yeah. We recorded this today, of course, at Pulse Music. Pulse Music. Yes. Recorded
1: this at the Pulse Music. Props
0: to them. Thank you,
1: as always. Yes. Thank you, Stephen Grawalski. Thank you to the whole team. Everyone over at Pulse Music. Um, thanks to Arthur for taking the time out to do this podcast. And yeah, let's uh, get into this podcast with Arthur from Gorilla Biscuits and Civ. Um, so sorry, I want to start at the beginning. Okay, let's start. You're from <laughs> Long Island. No. No. The Wikipedia page, I don't know who did that. It's
2: completely wrong. None of us is from Long Island.
1: Okay, hold on. Let's start over so I don't sound like an idiot. Because we're <laughs> no, actually not, friends. You know,
0: no, it's fine. Start over. I'll just edit I mean, it. Uh, Long Island, you know,
2: <laughs> technically, technically, I am... I was born on the island of Long Island, but I was born in Queens.
3: You were born in Queens. Yeah, which, which is connected to Long yeah. Island. Yeah, geographically,
2: <laughs> it's part of Long Island, but... Uh,
3: but it's a borough of New York City. It's
2: Yeah, geographically, it's Long Island, but um, in terms of its uh, its soul, it's it's New York City. Because
1: I always pictured you as being from Queens, so I thought that was yeah, surprising. I'm Queens. But it's, I'm Queens. Okay. For better or worse. We just did a podcast with another Queens resident. Who? Craig Satari. <laughs>
2: I was going to joke. I'm like, yeah, all Queens people, we know each other. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: I do know Craig Satari. I saw that. Are you from that.
2: Bayside, Queens? No, I'm, I was born in Jackson Heights Okay. and I grew up between Jackson Heights with my mom and then my dad is in Astoria. So I grew up between those two neighborhoods, but I was, yeah, Jackson Heights is where I'm from. That's where Civ is from too. Okay. Walter is from Rockaway, Queens. Right. Um, Luke, Abbey is a Brooklyn, Brooklyn boy native.
1: Okay.
4: And
2: then Alex is Iowa. So, yeah, nobody's from the island.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how did you sort of sort of get started going to like hardcore shows in New York? Um so I guess I
2: was like 15 and uh I was living with my mom and then just really really long arduous story short, uh, my dad was a like alcoholic drug addict and he got sober and he waited till he was sober for like a year or two and he got back in touch with us he lived in Astoria so we ended up my sister and I ended up moving in with my dad and at that point I would already started to like kind of want to get into different kinds of music um on my own I guess I call it like uh entry-level punk I mean I had an older cousin who was into it and so I got exposed to the dolls the pistols the clash Patti Smith all that through him um and I did actually I actually I loved The Clash already because like, I, I had uh, I'd seen them open for The Who in 82 and I had tried to see them the year before when they did the residency at Bond and my mom, she was really, she was great. She was a real like lefty, you know, progressive, loved New York uh, person who, who, encouraged, who encouraged us to take advantage of living here, but she drew the line because she bought the propaganda of it being so dangerous. And I suppose in retrospect, you know, <clears throat> Times square was dangerous then i freaking loved it but so i was she's like no no you can't do that i was too young so i had to see them the next year but anyway so then i moved to astoria and ernie and johnny from token entry i had known them from when i was kids and i used to go and spend the summers at my dad's and uh by the time i moved there they were like full on into it they had done gilligan's revenge they were like really a part of the whole hardcore scene and so it was just kind of a a natural progression that i was into you know punk music and new wave and and then I, you know, reconnected with them. They took me to CBGB. And, uh, yeah, I just, you know, Angstford and 15, 16-year-old. You go down there, you see Agnostic Front. You see this club completely packed. Fire hazard, straight-up fire hazard. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, so I was I was converted. And, was, was that terrifying? Yeah, completely. And had I not had those guys like uh, Ernie, Johnny, Anthony, Caminale... Because by then they were doing token entry. Uh take me down, I I mean, I never would have gone. I never I would never would have had the, the guts to walk into that club. Because the thing about it was it was a lot of kids like Walter Siv, and me, who were uh, you know, just working class kids that are about as, you know, frightening as a kitten. But there were some real dangerous dudes down there. Some some guys that, you know, in the internet age probably couldn't get away with laying low like you do like they you know, they used to do. And uh but you know, the other thing the other thing that I always talk and I bring it up with him was Jimmy Gestapo was from Astoria, so I met him in Astoria. and he's just a really great guy. And even back then, I mean, I'm like this nobody because there was there was a hierarchy and a pecking order in the scene. And uh, you know, I was, again, nobody, but he I met him in Astoria, and then the next weekend at CB's at the matinee outside the club he came up to me and was like hey Arthur how you doing he hugged me and it was suddenly it was in these moments where you kind of peripherally saw everybody take note and I was okay like no you know I was with Jimmy Jimmy knew me (laughs) that was okay because Jimmy was way up in the hierarchy you know (laughs) and um so yeah that I I but it was it was really a scary place I mean even even when I knew people I'd go there and I'd just be like look at this look at this guy man this is like a terrifying dude and uh you know, it was, uh, but I, uh, you know, it was, it was completely addicting. It was like, a, you know, for somebody like me that, you know, in Queens, Queens at the time was really different. It was kind of, it's funny now how Queens is getting gentrified and becoming a cool place because it was like the butt end of the joke. You know, everybody, you know, I went to high school, with, like from my high school where Siv and I went to high school, you could look out the window and see Manhattan. That's how close it was. Okay. I went to high school with kids that had never been to Manhattan. And they said, why do you, why do you go to the city? Why do you go to the city? <laughs> Like, what do you mean, what'll to go to the city? <laughs> it's a train ride away. You haven't been? <laughs> nah, I never been.
4: <laughs> <clears throat>
2: so like the goal for kids that were into different things was to get to Manhattan. Um and you know, we all did that at some point or other. But uh yeah, Queens at the time was kind of, you know, oh, you're from Queens in this like disparaging way. Brooklyn too. you know, Brooklyn is like the height of cool now and I I was gonna say,
3: like I my wife's family's from the Bronx. Oh Bronx. Her mom and all of you know, her family and her uncle who moved out of the Bronx I don't know 1970 to go yeah. to college and never lived there again. When we, you know, when we live in Brooklyn, his daughter moved to Brooklyn. He's like, "Why would anyone want to move to Brooklyn?" Yeah. <laughs> like the old guard still can't feels that fucking way. Fucking get it. Yeah, yeah, you my know? dad's generation is still like, "What? Yeah. Why?" But it's true.
2: Like yeah. it, it was, you know, Brooklyn was not cool. Brooklyn, you know, the Bronx, oh, the Bronx always had respect for the Bronx. No offense to anybody, but Staten Island is just an afterthought. That you know, we, yeah, always, we always Staten Island's
3: Jersey. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we say <laughs> Jersey
2: could have it. I mean, just look at the way Staten Island votes, and Jersey can fucking yeah. have it. But um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the only Manhattan was the cool borough. I don't mean, know, the Bronx. like I said, I've always had like this uh, awe of the Bronx. Well, see, I remember I grew up in the, in, in the seventies, and Bronx was burning, and yeah. going to Yankee games with my dad and seeing seeing the South Bronx and not really understanding what was going on. Of course, not being a political person, not understanding like these are, you know, this is the disaster of capitalism and this is the, the you know, systemic racism and, and such. I didn't get that. All I knew was like, this is burnt out and Damn. this is insane. I feel like
3: that even lasted into the early '90s. Yeah. Like Hell yeah. the Yankees games in the early '90s was freaky as fuck. Totally, yeah, yeah. the abandoned vehicles.
2: No, no, for sure. It all changed with Giuliani and that yeah. and that broken windows bullshit. But no, you're right. Because then even into the '90s, like I always talk. You know, everybody glorifies the '80s, and I was telling a friend of mine recently, a young guy. He's 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 so. Uh, from Columbia and he lives in New York now and we were just talking and he was asking me all about old New York because he has this romantic view of it. And, you know, saying the eighties, yeah, it was great and whatnot, but I was a teenager in the eighties. Like my time for living was the nineties. Like that's when I was an adult and I came of age and I was out of school and I could do things. And the nineties was, you know, living in the Lower East Side in the nineties. I, I, lived, I lived on Rivington Street in this apartment that was like with two other people. It was this massive apartment with an outdoor patio in the back. Right on the Rillington second floor what? between Ludlow and Essex. And I was paying 238 <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> a month. Wow. Because it wasn't a legal building. Right. You know, that's in the 90s. That's deep into the mid-90s at this point, you know. Um, and so, like, that's really things started changing in the 90s, but it didn't, you know, it didn't really manifest and hit. I guess, until the late 90s, or early 2000s. But, you know, I, I hear... Like even the Bronx now is getting gentrified, like the Grand Concourse area. Oh yeah, I have Bronx friends who, is the next spot, I have friends man. who
3: move there. <clears throat> it's too
0: wow. far, man. man. What I have so far. For me, it's close. It's actually well, funny.
2: I live about a ten to fifteen minute walk from Yankee Stadium. Oh really? Yeah, I live on one forty second between Broadway and Riverside. It's walk up to one fifty five, walk over McCones. and Cambridge, if you work right there.
3: uptown there, it's not that far. Wow, well,
2: it's yeah. a different city. It's It's a very different city. I mean, that's the funny thing. You know, my, my dad tells me stories that, you know, you don't know New York. But then he's like, well, my dad told me I don't know New York. And I guess I'll tell my kids if I have them, you, don't, you certainly don't know New York.
4: Yeah.
2: I mean, I remember when um, back in 1990, I had a second job. I was doing the sound at an off-Broadway show at the Victory Theater before it was renovated. And when I was doing this show it was around the time that word came out that Disney was going to take over Times Square. And Because really into 1990, 1991, Times Square was still Times yeah, Square. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I just remember like the pushback with the, art, the artistic community being like, no, 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 this is not how to do it. The way to do it is the, like, what the group that I was work- with whom I was working was doing it. You do real theater, organic, local theater. But uh, I remember I would leave that job at night at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night after the show. And uh, sometimes I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the train from Times Square. I'd walk down to Herald. Or I'd walk mm-hmm. up to like Forty Street because it was so goddamn dangerous. Right, I got mugged just being
3: in the subway yeah. station. That I got is...
2: mugged at this, in the in the Times Square subway station in broad daylight at six p.m. Holy six shit. p.m. <laughs> in, on a September afternoon <laughs> evening. Shit. I had just picked up a nineteen sixty two reissue Fender jazz bass. I had put it oh on my layaway. I had worked my ass off, and I had just picked it up, and it was a nice day out. And I had my my wallet in my back pocket, and have a jacket on to cover it or anything. And I'm walking down the steps, just happy as I could be this candy, apple, red, '62 issue, J-Base, stack knob. And the next thing I know, it was, it was like 10 after 6. Next thing I know, I'm at St. Luke's Roosevelt. It's uh, about Fuck. quarter after midnight. Oh, and, and my arm is around my sister and my friends and my, friends and my sister and my, my old man were there. And I was walking out and I'm like, it just, all of a sudden, it was like, where, what the hell is going on? And so my sister had this relationship. She's like, okay, you, you were mugged. You had, you had amnesia for the last six hours. You're not going to your apartment. We're taking you home. Um, I was just cut up. What had happened was they hit me over the head with, like, I assume it was like a slapjack or something. And they didn't take the base, though. That was my first Whoa, question. really? Like, oh, you got it? the base? Too cumbersome to run with it. They wanted my wallet. <laughs> Dude, so I was like, that is a- Perfect.
3: That's a- <laughs> I'm like, they got away with $20. No, they
2: got away with $60. Take my wallet. Three 20s and my, and my ATM card, which I could cancel right away. Yeah. And my, my bank card didn't have anything in it because I just paid for the jazz piece <laughs> <base> anyway. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I was like...
2: I just look at my, like, where's my bass? like, your bass is fine, your bass is fine. I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be something? Like, I put this friggin' thing on layaway, and then, like, you know, but anyway.
0: But I, had a, I had a guitar stolen one time when I was driving to oh, the, uh, to pawn it, because I was broke. I've done that too. Oh, <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> don't want to
2: talk about that. Well, you don't Some have to pawn gems.
3: anymore with Craigslist Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. That shit, you just sell this it. This was before Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you
0: lose? What was it? It was a Les Paul, it was like a Les Paul Deluxe with the thin humbuckers. Like that one right there. Matter of fact, maybe that's it. I should check this <laughs> out. <sober. laughs> <it had> the P90 in it, the, hey, the, the so Yeah, No, the thin, no, thin humbuckers. Okay. It was a nice guitar. But... It's a
2: fucking Gibson Les Paul. <laughs> it's yeah. a
0: nice guitar. <laughs> they never had a bad year, did they? No. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's the thing I learned because I was as a Fender guy. And then once I started learning more, I learned that like, you know, the Fender had some rough years. Gibson never did. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's true.
3: Although, like, those 70s, 80s Gibsons are, like, 400 pounds.
1: Yeah, I have, I have an 89 Les Paul Custom, and I think it's, like, giving me permanent back problems. Yeah. Walter
2: Walter's so, Les Paul Custom, the quicksand guitar. Yeah. Do you know why he didn't play that for the longest time? No. Just the sheer weight. Yeah. 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 That's why he was playing as To FGs. stand up
3: and play that. Have you yeah. seen
2: the size of Walter? He's like me. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> remember one time when I was in token Entry, I was playing guitar, and I played a Stratocaster, and uh, I broke a string during the set and you know it was quick turnover at CB's I couldn't sit there and like restring the guitar and Gavin Gavin Von Block gave me his Les Paul for half the set I really thought that my spine had compressed <laughs> like, probably you, did yeah I'm like how it's, do you how do you play this goddamn yeah. thing you know I'm like they sound yeah. so good though. they do yeah. nothing yeah. in the world
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, why I, could never that's play. why I could never play one because of that I had used to play like a, a Spirit which is like a junior because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was kind of close to the sound but could actually wear it for an hour
2: yeah, yeah there's, but there really is nothing there's a reason nothing sounds nah, like nah, a Les yeah. Paul it really I still I mean I'm just very much you know the old guard with that too I'm like you want a heavy sound get yourself a Les Paul and a 50 watt Marshall or a 100 watt Marshall totally get a freaking get a JCM 800 or a JMP and overdrive the shit out of it with those EL34s and you're not going to get a better sound yeah it's that.
1: yeah. true how did yeah. so how did you and Civ kind of like put Gorilla Biscuits together
2: Okay, that was, um, it was interesting because I became friends with Walter when we were living. Walter was living in Astoria by this point. How and- did you guys meet? <laughs> my first job was at this place called Wallbound. a supermarket right down the block from my house. So I got the job and they were like, okay, Wally's going to train. You go find him. <laughs> and I'm like, it's my first fucking day. It's a supermarket. There are a million people here. And they're like... Said, they're like you're gonna know he looks just like you <laughs> I'm like weaving the aisles up and down and I see this freakish skinny kid with the most like adorable <laughs> Paul McCartney face and I saw him from the back and I just remember he was wearing cuff jeans which like if you wore cuff jeans back then you were either into rockabilly or more hardcore that was like a thing. Right, right, and a pegging, crew cut
3: pegging your jeans. exactly Yeah,
2: and he's like all duck footed and walking and I'm like and I see the crew cut and I'm like Wally turns around looks at me just a mouthful of steel. He had like <laughs> braces on both, like silver braces. Hey man, you must be the new guy. Yeah. What's your name? Arthur. Yeah, man, I'm Walter. Okay, cool. Um, what kind of music are you into? He asked me, I told him. And he actually asked me, goes, do you ever go to CBGB? I'm like, I go there every weekend. Can I go with you? Sure. So we became friends right away. And uh, interestingly enough, I found out that we were, we, we one of the things on which we bonded was our goofy names. And his, he's like, yeah, man, my middle name is Arthur. And I thought he's like kidding with me. His name is Walter Arthur. I'm like, wow, you're you're like twice cursed.
4: <laughs> Cause I
2: was, and, but by the same, by the but by, by the same token, I, I never wanted my middle name to be Walter Moore. But um, so <laughs> that yeah, been amazing. <laughs> I know, I know. So we became really, really good friends, and you know, we started hanging out, and um, you know, I was in Token Entry at the time, and then Walter wanted to put this band together and i was playing guitar for token entry but i've always considered myself a bass player it's the instrument i love so he's like i'm going to do this thing play bass for me for sure and then ernie from token entry was playing drums so we needed a singer now in the, in the in the interim um i don't how did we do it cuz siv was in Jackson Heights and we met siv at this point now i was in i was, this is the funny thing i was in the same high school as siv in the same grade as Siv, but we didn't know each other. There were about a thousand kids in our high school, and there were four kids that were into punk rock or hardcore. It was Siv, uh, uh, our friend Danny Zick, our friend Gus, this other kid, I think Andrew was his name, and Siv. But it's funny because Siv and I didn't have any classes together, and
4: he's—I
2: Siv is one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. And I was like, dude, we never had any class together. He's like, yeah, because I took all the fucking idiot classes and you took all like the (laughs) the smart guy classes. But um, it took meeting Walter. Walter met him somehow. And then we all like, you know, totally loved him right away. And we used to go, we used to take our skateboards from Astoria and skate over to Jackson Heights to the laundromat where Steve worked across the street from his house. And I remember we went to the laundromat and the laundromat had a basement and It's just kind of like it was a harbinger of our lives because Walter and I were doing everything we could at this point to avoid work. And Siv was like working really hard. And that's like how it's always been. And we'd go to the laundromat after school (laughs) and Siv would give us coins from the laundry machines to get like soda and and snacks from the vending machine but anyway they had this basement there and we went downstairs and civ and and his friend danny we're still all friends i saw danny recently they had done on the wall of the uh of the basement they had written the lyrics to last warning in the exact font that it's written in victim in pain and walter went and i went down there and it was just like you know mushroom clots from our ears our minds were blown at how cool this was (laughs) (laughs) so we loved civ he started hanging out and then this is the story of how he so like this is the, the the germ this is like the incipient gorilla biscuits but uh, walter would write all these joke songs because he's one of the funniest people like those two guys have done nothing but make me laugh for 30 plus years and um anyway so we were all hanging out this there was this place called the pyramids in astoria that we used to skate there were these like truncated pyramids outside of the con edison plant and they were perfect for skating so like all the punk rock kids would hang out there the mm. hardcore kids
3: those are in a lot of skate videos from that time yeah i remember that they're yeah. in
2: disrepair now yeah. I, I i still go back to the neighborhood because i lived there until recently my sister lives there my dad lives there but um we were all hanging out and uh only gonna die by bad religion was on because you know, in the 80s we had boom boxes and yeah. civ starts singing along and civ has just, like really can truly sing. He's one of those people I, I'm so envious of him because I can't, so I'm a terrible singer. Like, I can carry a tune for backup, but I wish I could sing. And uh, Ernie from Token Entry was like, you should sing for Walter's band. You should sing for the new band. So, of course, you know, like the, the, the extremely, you know, difficult vetting process. Sure, cool. <laughs> so that, that's how that happened. And then, you know, Walter started writing all these songs, and a lot of them were really goofy, and then Suddenly we kind of realized that we're onto something that Walter... I remember the song that made me realize that Walter really had talent and really could write a song was uh, when he wrote High Hopes. At that moment, I thought, wow, now we're into something new over here. Like, this guy really has an ear for writing a catchy song. So, yeah, and then the, the, the original lineup was... Uh, and we have the demo, too, that we did in, in, in that summer of 86. It was a Walter, Civ... Uh, Ernie playing drums, and myself.
1: Yeah. What was it like? What was the process like of making Start Today? Because I feel like, kind of like, today, that's probably, like, if not the most legendary hardcore record ever. Like, one of them. Wow.
2: We didn't think so at the time. Really? Um, Walter started writing the album. And uh, we we got signed to Revelation Records. And Rev had some success at that point, so they had a little bit of money. And uh, we had a budget, so... <laughs> Rather than listening to Judge, to like you did today, and Judge, who basically told us not to do it, we went to Chung King. <laughs> we started recording at Chung King. And Chung King, what they did, they did great. They had no idea how to work with punk rock and hardcore. And, you know, we got the worst hours. I remember uh, rec- we would record at like two, three, four, five in the morning. And I remember it was wintertime, and uh, <laughs> I lived in Queens and Luke lived in Brooklyn, but the studio's in Manhattan. And we had to be there at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And it's freezing outside. So I remember Luke and I going and getting, uh, taking a nap at my ex-girlfriend at her dorm. She lived at Weinstein uh, on University Place because she was a freshman at NYU. And we got up and we went and recorded there. And they just treated us like they just like we were trash. It was, really, it was really kind of funny and annoying. And uh, I remember we had, we had an engineer who had like a really serious coke problem. And one night he didn't have any coke and <coughs> he was just so... Freaking irritable, and Walter and I were like goofballs at the time, and we were like making up these songs, these stupid, annoying songs. It's totally <laughs> like
3: you're the client. <laughs> yeah. I know
2: we're yeah. giving you <laughs> money. So Walter and I, at the time, we recorded start today. Um, I was recorded it on a on a uh, 1973 Precision bass that had been stripped down to natural wood, and Walter was recording it on my Stratocaster that I had sold him my Stratocaster that had also been stripped down to natural wood. So they were both like these ash body defenders with black pick guards and they were right next to each other so of course walter having to make a joke of everything in life it's like wow i said like wow look at that our instruments complement each other really really nicely so walter made up this song and uh he's like so the song is tall and skinny because we're both tall and skinny so he's like the song is we're tall, skinny and we have the same guitars we're tall, skinny and we have the same guitars and then he does the harmony tall, tall, skinny and we have the same guitars and then it ends with at the first verse it ends and he goes well I'm a little bit short but I have the same guitar
3: and it repeats and at the end of the
2: second verse he drops out and I go he's a little bit short but he's as
3: skinny as me it's a good hook it's already in my head it'll never leave your
2: head and you're gonna lose your mind and you hate me for doing this to you but the thing is we're one night the night that he didn't have his coke and he's like he was actually crawling on the floor like looking <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah so we, we're like bored we're paying for this and it's freaking 3 o'clock in the morning and it's freezing outside so um we start singing the song. He's like, guys, no, no tall and skinny tonight. No goddamn fucking tall and skinny tonight. <laughs> so I look at Walter. He looks at me. Because we're tall and skinny. So anyway, we, we, we finally realized soon enough like, that that wasn't happening. So we, we, we uh, put an end to that and decided we were going to record it at, uh, at Fury Studio. And um, that was the best thing we did because Don Fury knew us. We had done a the demo there. But I remember recording it because we were we did it on uh, on videotape. That was the technology at the time for the for the, for the least amount of noise. You recorded on videotape. Wait, video? when is
0: ADAT? It's
2: before ADAT. It was done on 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 either was it on Beta or VHS? I just remember he
3: Don had a bank of four. That's the
0: ADATS. Those were the ADATS.
3: That's what they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. This was like when like yeah. in the early nineties. Nine. It 89. looks like
3: a. In between uh When was it? eighty nine.
0: Oh no, it couldn't have been A
3: Eighty late eighty
0: eight, early eighty nine. Don had yeah. a bank of A Dats
2: late. I think this is before. He yeah, had, no, I no. think it was actual video uh, like videotape that uh. he used. Yeah. And uh so Walter's writing the album and I'm just thinking, wow, this guy is really just progressed. Like he's hit a new level over here. And uh, you know, with, when he when he came out with the song Start Today, I was like and then competition, like it was like Dude, you're just And then we were done with the album, I remember, and he's like, I have one more song, I have one more song. We got to learn it and do it. And the song that almost didn't make the album was st- uh, New Direction. No way. Yeah, it was the last song. <laughs> really? It was the last song. Yeah. Last song. Uh-huh. And then uh the interesting thing about that album is that uh initially the songs had a- they were a lot more melodic. And then, you know, we decided uh to rough it up a little bit. And I was against it. I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, we're such a soft band. I'm like, yeah, that's what we are. I'm like, we have a singer that can sing. How many singers? I'm like, Richie can sing. Richie, Richie Birkenhead can sing and Siv can sing. We're like the bands in New York that have singers that can sing.
3: What was melodic? Like, there was a more melodic yeah. Like, okay, so you know the song parts? Cats and
2: Dogs? Yeah, yeah. It was, it's like, man, the original thing, it was a man's best friend is beautiful and affectionate. So you can see I can't sing. an Ideal <laughs> Pet, it had an actual, like, up like and down, me- lilting melody. And, uh, I mean, there's some others I can't think of. Because like,
3: it's funny, I thought even, like, out of bands from that era, your band was so melodic. like Yeah. yeah. The lyrics oh, and the melodies—that was what. Yeah,
0: that's that was the thing. That's what yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Oh, or of like or,
2: um, or competition. So you, um, okay. So the bassline—I picked up the melody on the bassline to the course of that, where it goes because it originally was "Memories of Better Days," and like they roughed that up a little bit, you know. And um, I got outvoted on that, but that's fine because I didn't write the songs, you know. I sat there and I was obstinate about. It. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but in the end, it's Walter and Siv. Like they're the you know, the the guys that are making it happen. And I guess it turned out okay. But it's funny that after all these years, after not hearing the, the original versions for so long, they're still stuck in my head, those melodies. But, uh, so yeah, I remember um, we went into Don Fury's studio and we did it and we did it in like no time at all. It didn't take long at all. And uh, the atmosphere was just so much better. Yeah. I do remember very distinctly um, when they still called the Super Bowl Hardcore in uh, January of 89... And that ended up being the picture of me on, on Star Today is taken from that show. Uh, we ran directly over to the Ritz from uh, Webster Hall, the Ritz then. Uh, nothing now. We ran directly over from the studio. And Chris Williamson's like screaming at us because we were late. Get up fuck on stage. We're like, yo, dude, just calm down. But I remember as we walked in, people knew we were at the studio in the scene. And that was like, the Super Bowl was like, everybody showed up. So Super it was, Bowl you know, like 1,500 like kids. <laughs> so kids that didn't show up at every CB's matinee were like, oh, yo, you guys, I heard you in the studio, I heard you in the studio. And it just felt kind of cool to know that we had like already generated this buzz that people cared about it. But the thing is, I didn't think people understood, like, you know, I think the 7-inch had a couple of songs that gave an indication and then the compilations we did, but I didn't think that, you know, I didn't expect Walter to write the things that he wrote. And he still does this to me to this day. And then things that everything he writes. And I kind of like was harassing him recently because um, a few years ago, we were doing the Walter Schreifels project. And he wrote these some of these really catchy, amazing rock and roll songs and pop songs. And I just licked them him, really, I don't know, in the last few months, like I, every so often I'll, I'll bother him about this and just be like, dude, you just need to put those songs down. Let's go in and put these three songs down and just re-release them. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have enough on your plate, do you? <laughs> that's like, that's my joke with him now. I'm like, hey, so Walter, you need a new project, don't you? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, Arthur. Why do I keep doing this? But uh...
0: let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about Don Fury because. Yes. So we've had a lot of bands in here who got their start in that fucking basement. And we've yeah. never talked about Don Fury. Oh, and do I it. work with Don Fury and he is a phenomenon. Yeah. And back then... And a character. Yeah, and a full-on character. A <laughs>
3: total character. So
0: just describe the studio at the time.
2: <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's on... Uh, which is
0: on a very, now, very prominent Spring block. Street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was Spring Street in Little Italy. And uh, he lived in... we <laughs> you ever go
2: into his apartment?
0: Yeah, yeah. He used to have the parties. The yeah. in his He lived in, on the first floor, the which is like front. a storefront. Yeah. And he had the basement, which the studio was in. And like, I've been there for parties when his neighbors would throw fucking shit off the roof, like water and (laughs) shit, because people are spilling out onto the street. You know, like, but he had had kids too. That was the thing. He was was divorced and he had these two kids that were there half the time. Yeah, yeah. But the studio was like, you know, sonically and everything, it was horrific. It was just a fucking basement. Basement, yeah. With a tiny little control room. And he had his outboard, he literally had two of those DBX compressors with the slider on them. <laughs> and that was all he had for compressors. But dude, he made some, he worked with every, he did all the, he did everybody's records. Like Civ, yeah. Gorilla Biscuits, Quicksand. Quicksand. He did all the, first, yeah. all the early really shit. put him on the map.
2: Right. Yeah. But you see, so, you so the studio, you know this. So you're walking down, you're walking down Spring Street. And um, so anybody walks down any street in New York, you, you step on them. On the metal the middle, doors, yeah, that are against the sidewalk. Well, to get to get into Fury Studio, those metal doors opened up, and there was a, a concrete staircase that went down. And I can't count how many times I hit my forehead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you go downstairs, and there it is. You walk right into the control room. Right. So the control room was the width of whatever the plot is. You know how how wide is that? Dude, 12, was, 12 feet. Yeah, <laughs> at the most. Yeah. yeah, and maybe six feet deep. Yeah, and then you know a good three and a half of those feet are taken up by whatever the board is. So there's like this little couch and like another chair and then to the right of the board. So that, yeah. And then there's the the window and to the right of the board was the door to go into the actual studio. Studio had a carpet that was probably about as sanitary (laughs) as the floor of CB's because God knows what had been spilled on it. Never been clean. Never been clean. (laughs) And, uh, You know, you just set up your equipment in this one big room, but in the back right corner, he had the fishbowl. what the the
4: drums, the drum (laughs) booth.
2: No, I'm laughing because I've got the best story about things that happen in there. And, uh, you would play
4: live. Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, you put the headphones on, which to us, mind you, this is my first experience in a studio. I'm thinking this is the most pro thing in the world. And, uh it was comfortable though and you know you looked at Don and and you know he was in there and you laid down the tracks and then you started with the overdubs and Walter and Don had this great great rapport they kind of knew I remember I remember when we were recording uh, the Civ album Set Your Goals right on the heels of that Walter was actually simultaneously he was working on Manic Compression <laughs> and it was a beautiful spring day and I stopped by the studio because we were going to we we're going to do the tracks for Don't Gotta Prove It at a 51 reissue custom shop, Butterscotch Blonde, Fender Precision Base, <laughs> which was a casualty of a pawn shop. That's the one I don't want to talk about. But I was living on Grand Street at the time and I walked over and I was like, hey, Wally, you're already here. He's like, man, I'm always here. He's like, I'm always here. Don and I are becoming like slee stacks because we never see the sunlight. <laughs> Our eyes are just getting really big and hypersensitive. And um, anyway, so uh, just... <laughs> Okay, they'll go to the fishbowl story. So, <laughs> and both of, them,
4: both of them involve Sam Siegler. So, we're,
2: <laughs> we're recording. We're recording one day. So, I'm looking over at Walter. Like, you know, I'm listening to Sam, but I'm looking at Walter. And all of a sudden, so the way we're set up is that as I'm facing Walter's, the, the, the fishbowl is to my right.
0: So, wait, we should tell you what the fishbowl is. Yeah, it's the, the drum. Oh, right. I didn't even explain it's what corner, it is. In the corner, he had. <laughs> put, of a basement. Like, Plexiglass, a plexiglass curved Herf, wall. A half, a half circle. Yeah, yeah. That was like to shield the drums from bleeding into the rest of the room, which just made them sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, go ahead.
2: <laughs> so, so I'm watching Walter, and then all of a sudden I noticed like a f- peripherally, I noticed a flash of a- I noticed a flash of light, a- I turn around. <laughs> just for a second, the drums stop. And I see Sammy running for cover like this, <laughs> holding the <him for> cover. <laughs> he had hit the light bulb
4: oh, over him. Exploded, exploded. And exploded <laughs> all over him in the fishbowl. <laughs> and the ceiling's only
0: seven feet, man. <laughs> I was losing my shit laughing. <laughs> and
2: then another time, it had gotten so hot in the fishbowl that <laughs> Sammy just threw up all over the drums. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going in there between takes just to see how it was. <laughs> and I, I don't know how they survived. It was so, so, it was, there was no filtration system. There was no vent. So,
0: the it filtration was, system was between takes. <laughs> time would open the door, <laughs> and open the door to the street, and like he would sit. And so that you know the Italians would all hear his mixes all day yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remember. So
2: it's the stale air in there, and then like the, the drummer is doing the most physic, you know, physically exerting thing. So it just stinks in there too. <laughs> I don't know, Sam or Luke or anybody <laughs> didn't just pass out, or Alan Cage didn't
3: pass out in there. That is so crazy. Yeah, it's just like. But that place was, is... That, that should have been... I wish I, wish a landmark. I had the chance to go in that there. Do you know I what Siv told me, imagined. actually?
0: He went
2: by, the, he went by and uh, the rest of owners are, are cognizant of what was there. Oh, really? And respectful of it, and they actually will let you go down in the basement. If you go to say, hey, I recorded here, if you get them on the right day or something, they brought Siv down, and it's still pretty much preserved. I mean, oh, they use it as cool. a storage,
0: but... They'd leave the wall up between I think the control they left, room?
2: I don't know if that's there, but the things on the walls, I think, are still there. I think everything's still, like, pretty huh. much... Yeah, I don't know if the fishbowl's still there, but I've got to ask him. But he went in about a year or two ago, and he was telling me he's like, yeah, they're really cool. Like they, wow. Yeah, I went in and I was like, they, they. I just went in, and I think he just said to me, hey, I used to record downstairs, and they, they were really receptive to it. Like I said, they, uh-huh. they're, they're aware of what the history of that place is, and you know, just another. Another thing, you know, gone. And it's funny now with recording, because, you know, later on with Civ, we ended up recording at, like, Bearsville Studios on this massive Neve board that supposedly was the board they used for Quadrophenia. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I want to believe it. Right. Because I want to <laughs> believe that I played bass through the same board that John Entwistle did. Right. It's true. It's probably
3: it's true. true. It's it's probably true. true. It's Bearsville. But,
2: yeah. yeah, that studio was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I remember just, like, I went into this, this, the, uh, the storeroom of that studio, and I was just amazed at, like, the tubes that they had... And the amplifiers, I, I mean, the bank of amplifiers I used to record the second Civ album. And then, you know, so afterward, we'd and now you look at recording the way it is, digital and whatnot. And then, you know, it's really primitive when you think of what, what Fury was doing. But for us at the time, it was cutting edge. Like, oh, you're going to do this to cancel out noise? That's brilliant. <laughs> and it was our first uh, experience with, with, uh, with you know, uh in, drop-ins and, and overdubs and punch-ins rather and overdubs
3: and it can be pretty disorienting if you've never done it before yeah i just thought it's it was like, magical and cool because
2: yeah. you know most of the bass lines i got down live but they're you know i'm a human being and and you know you go slightly off and i would I was like oh my god we can just do this and now the way it's done yeah. is just so yeah. much different yeah, it is. Know, it's like oh we can pick that up but i feel like stretch it out yeah compress it you know like
3: i feel like especially like for singers even in the digital age just hearing themselves in headphones for the first time, like I'll always ask someone, have you have you sang in headphones before? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, because it it's so thing. people get super freaked out. Yeah, and, like, it's concerning. I totally imagine. lose yeah. their ability to oh, I to, to sing. I had a like, question about.
1: Uh, oh sorry, we still no. Talk, no, no but, uh, ch- when Charlie came on the podcast, yeah, he talked about Charlie CIV opening for Kiss at MSG, yeah. and he took the subway there. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> you did too. I was gonna. Yeah. That was my question.
2: Yeah, that's when I was living on. Uh, Was I living on Rivington at the time or was I living, where the hell was I living? I moved so much. During those civ years, I ended up actually giving up my apartment and I would just, because we were always on tour, so I would crash with my sister on 81st Street in East End. I don't know where I was staying at the time, but I took, yeah, I had my jazz bass in a gig bag and, uh, oh no, I used the P bass. I was using the P bass and I had in a gig bag and showed up at Madison Square Garden like, (laughs) I'm the support act.
1: (laughs) What do, you, what do you remember about that show?
2: <laughs> that they're dicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do the show. Really? I was outvoted three to one because we were on the <laughs> Warp Tour. I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad we did it because it's something to say. Mm-hmm. But I was like, wait, so we're gonna drop off the Warp Tour for two days, pay money to fly home, open for Kiss, get no respect, no money, because at that point, Gene Simmons was saying. Even Allison Chains didn't get paid when they opened on that tour. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's like, the, the payment is the honor of opening for Kiss.
4: Oh, my oh God. That's gosh.
2: like the most Gene Simmons thing. <laughs> I just want to sit down and be like, dude, you do know that you're just a grown man wearing kabuki makeup that's playing <laughs> mediocre songs. And the only people reason people come to see you is because of your show. Because to your credit, you put on an incredible show. But your songs pretty much suck. Yeah. <laughs> you're not a bass player. You're, a,
0: you're what I call a bass a bass abuser or a bass molester <laughs> um, Night, Night Bob told me the best kiss story you know Night Bob? no I don't think the so guy, he used to like oh Night Bob he used to do sound at like uh, like Don Hills and he's oh then I definitely know him and he, they call him Night Bob because he used to work he got to start working at the music building on Ninth uh, Avenue I was there, was there, a, the other day. there was a day Bob and a night Bob. No, oh, nice, <laughs> nice. But night Bob is like this. Rodie's for he used to roadie for like the dolls, and then he rode it for Kiss. Yeah, they came out of the same scene. Yeah, and he said that like besides the fact that he said that Kiss loved the New York dolls, like they would whenever yeah, they, they were planning the a tour, dolls. they would talk about. Oh, remember when they were, we were there with the dolls? Like how awesome that was? Yeah,
2: because they owed the dolls they took from the dolls, and the dolls were actually good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. But he said. They were doing this tour that was later, you know, like, like not, you know, not a reunion tour, but like a tour in like the '80s or late '80s, or and he said, or maybe early '90s. And he said, you know, they showed up at the at the stage where the rehearsal was going to be, and they're waiting for for Paul and and Gene to show up. And he looks up, and here come these two guys walking in in like gym shorts, like '70s gym shorts, and and they sit down and they start talking about the tour, and the whole time they're just like kvetching about. Uh, well, if we're gonna okay, Cleveland, we can't stay at that hotel we stayed at last time. <laughs> that was terrible, and like they literally couldn't talk anything about the music or the show or the venue. They were just like literally like just bitching. He's and like, like, and it the, was like he goes, like a couple of old
3: biddies. He said like,
0: it looked and sounded like I was in the room with two old Jewish ladies.
2: Was it Paul and Jean?
4: Yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Well,
2: I, I mean, I have mad respect for Ace. I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm 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 definitely like talking shit about Kiss, but it was cool i mean i one more thing i do have a cool david Johansen story and i'll tell you guys in a second that happened just weeks ago but um one thing that also struck me is that i wanted to get to our dressing room and so i went to walk down the hall and security's like you can't go down here and i was like all access i'm i'm, I'm support they're like no that's kiss's dressing room is down here it's like i will walk by it and not look in. they're like no you got to walk around i had to take this massive circuitous route i was like <laughs> okay what if i tell you that I don't give a shit about them, and I don't even like them. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. It's like, wow. Right. <laughs> but the best thing is that Siv won that crowd over, and it was not an easy crowd. That is not really? An open, not an open-minded crowd. The night before, apparently, DJ and it had stuff thrown at them, and we're like, so Siv's like, I'm just, fuck it, man. I'm, I'm de- reaching deep inside and getting my queens out. We walked out on stage holding my 73 P base. We're dressed in this like vintage fucking clothing with cre- brothel creepers. I got my hair in a freaking, <laughs> in a in a fucking massive uh, quiff. And so we walk out and there's a spotlight. So I'm like, okay, so if something gets thrown at me, I won't even be able to see it coming. Yeah, dodge yeah. it now.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Walk out on stage. And these are not my words. Cause I don't speak like this. I'm just, I have to quote it for this is the reception we got. Walk out on stage. First thing, right at me if somebody's from get off the stage faggot <laughs> I look at Siv and am like this is gonna be good <laughs> <laughs> so we get out on the stage and Siv just comes right out he's like hey paraphrasing whatever he's like yeah we're Siv we're from New York City I'm from Queens, New York we, we know you're here to see Kiss we're excited to see him too we're just gonna warm you up for a little while so people were all of a sudden you know okay well he's coming out in this way with this humility and we won them over and we actually had a really good show and it was a lot of fun and like I said in retrospect I'm really glad we did it and, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I was, yeah, I was totally for it. I was against it. But uh, it, turned, no, it turned out to be cool and it's such a cool story to tell. And I could say that I played Madison Square Garden. Yeah, you, hell you, yeah. How
3: do you sound check for that? <laughs> you don't. You don't. You just show up. Yeah. there Holy You're not shit. allowed to sound
2: check. I mean, not opening for Kiss, you're not allowed to sound check.
3: Holy shit. You're, like, not allowed any. You just, sh- well, I mean, you take the subway. <laughs> yeah, You take the you subway. Take subway. We- yeah. Exactly what I did. We all stage. showed up
2: on our own. Wow. We all showed started- up. Civ, was- Civ came up from Thompson Street. That's where he was living on Thompson. Sammy was living on West 11th, I guess, at the time. Uh, Charlie was living on Leroy Street, and I was living somewhere. And we all just showed up at our own. I- like I said, I had I had my 73 P-Bass in a gig bag. I had left my other P-Bass on the Warp Tour because we were flying right back. And, uh, Yeah. <laughs> But David Joe, I have a great David Johansson story. So I went to see Morrissey last month and I'm going up to Will Call to get the tickets and I'm with my fiance and I look at her and I'm like, David Joe's in the line next to us. And she's like, huh? I'm like, David Johansson's in the line next to us and nobody's saying anything. Nobody's recognizing him, but that's fucking David Johansson, man. <laughs> she's like, yeah. And it's like, the New Yorker in me says, leave him alone. I don't like bothering people. Yeah. So I did. Right. So the show ends and we go afterward, we walk over to where like the after party was And there he is with like two people. And I went up and I'm like, hey, I just want to tell you, you know, you're, you're incredible. Do you mind if I, do you mind if I take a picture with you? Yes. So now I'm a little confused. So I had to clarify. I said, wait, wait, so so you mind that I take the picture? Yeah. Okay. I just want to tell you, I'm a huge fan. I'm from (laughs) Queens and like, yeah, cool. Thanks. Yeah. And my fiance is like this tough little like New York Jewish girl that's just I could see her getting irate and like, just calm down. She's like, how fucking dare he? Nobody else recognized him. And I was like, you know what, something, you know, how dare he, Caitlin? He's David Johansson. He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) And the funny thing is that in 2012, he had played a show upstairs at Webster Hall. What was that club called? Was it Velvet Rope or something? It was super exclusive. Like it was one of the most exclusive shows. I think only 50 people got in and I knew the girl that booked Webster. So she got me in and I'm watching him play. And so I thought Dave, I thought he was going to, like, we had a moment at that show, It was as close as you are. And I made complete eye contact with him while he's singing, I don't know, some doll song, you know, Frankenstein or something. And he's like looking right at me and I'm just like swooning hearts and bubbles. So I'm thinking that we have this eternal bond, right? Not so. But I think it's a great story. Like I got completely yeah. cut down by David Johansson. Yeah. Could be worse. Could be worse. <laughs> exactly. But I will say this, had that been Johnny Thunders or Sil Sylvain. We grew up in Jacks same neighborhood and we went to the same high school. From my first half of my high school, I went to Newtown High School. And that's where that's where S- Billy Mercia, Syl Sylvain, and D- and uh, and Johnny Thunders. Thunders all went to school. Yeah. Oh, and they really? all grew up in my neighborhood in Jackson Heights. <coughs> that's wow. wild. So I would have pulled that card. I would have been yeah, like, Jackson yeah. Heights, Newtown <laughs> High School. And I still I think Sil would have been like totally cool with it. Yeah. I think Syl would have been trying, like, Yeah, for sure, for sure. Man. But anyway, the dolls, great band.
1: Um, all right. I want to mention the first time that we hung out, I don't know if you remember this, was yeah. at my apartment in Williamsburg. Yeah. And it was like before the 2008 election, and we were watching like the debates or something. Oh, God. And we didn't really like know each other very well because I think I met you through Jamie. Yeah, through Jamie. Yeah. And, I remember this. And I remembered like. And it's funny that I remember because I was like, I'm a raging alcoholic
2: <laughs> and I, that, I was an active <laughs> alcoholic then. And I'm a bit sober now.
1: It so. was like, it was like Arthur came really early and it was like the debates were on and you were like super animated and everyone's like, dude, the guy from Gorilla Biscuits is just watching the debates at your apartment. I was like, yeah, he's like really into it. None of us knew anything about politics and we were like, tell us about it. Yeah. And I, Oh God. <laughs> seems like ages ago. It seems like so. Is
2: Yeah. Addendum. Another reason, fuck Gene Simmons, is a Republican. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, go on. Yeah. I mean, have you still, I mean, like I know you, obviously you're big into activism and that kind of stuff. I mean, is yeah. it, have you kind of like, not to so like be like a downer for this podcast, but like, have you kept up with all that stuff or have oh, you yeah. kind of like,
2: I haven't, been doing activism lately um you burn out on it yeah so i have people that never stop i have some friends where i just have such respect for them because especially when you're on the losing side and i'm i mean i'm a marxist i'm a socialist i'm on the losing side i'm getting my ass kicked left and right you know it's really difficult and i respect people that keep going with it i mean i think it's more important now than ever because i don't need to say why we've all been living here for the last year um but yeah it's i'm, I'm a hyper political person joe stromer did that yeah. I lo- and I'll always love the clash for that. You know, my mom did it too, because my mom was always a, a super lefty. And, and uh, you know, throughout my life, I've, you know, moved around. I used to think I was a libertarian, which it makes me laugh because I think it's... I realize what a scam that philosophy is anyway. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't help but be political. And I think that now, more than ever, people need to be engaged and be, and be political because, you know, I... I have no illusions about the United States. I know what it is. I know it's always been a plutocracy. I know it's always been a racist country, um, but we can be better. You know, that's the thing. People are like, why do you hate America? I'm like, I hate manifest America. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an internationalist. I hate countries. I think they're false constructs. But anyway, America, you know, what is America? It's what we can be. And, uh, you know, like I said, I have no illusions about what it, what it always has been but we can be so much better and it's been completely whatever good there was has been hijacked and i was just having this discussion today where it's like i will gain a little bit of respect for the the the, the, uh the um the idea of america if it does stand up and it withholds this assault because it's it's an autocratic assault from this guy and um so far like it's holding it's holding you know i mean we still we still do have the first amendment we still you know it's, it's, you know, he can't, he can't govern by fiat yet. So, you know, that was more more than anything, but I'm, I'm optimistic though. It's funny because Siv has a Siv da- has two daughters and one of them is 15 now. And a few months ago, it was kind of funny because it was my fiance, she's, she's 27. So I'm, I'm not. So I kind of lucked out with this amazing, incredible person, but she was, uh, we were talking about Siv's daughter and she was, and I was saying, did you realize the next presidential election, presidential election she's going to vote? And so Caitlin kind of take a dig at me. She's like, how does that feel that she's old enough to vote? And I stopped. I was like, it feels fantastic. Do you know why? Because I know how she thinks and I know what her politics are. And I know her whole generation is coming up and they have that politics. So millions and millions of little Bellas Mm -mm. are going to come of age to vote. And all those reactionary, horrible fossils that did this are going to be dead. So I am looking forward to it because I can't (laughs) fucking wait until Bella Civarelli and all her friends... (laughs) Millions and tens and tens of millions of them can vote in the next election. That's gonna be fantastic. And you know, they're not just in New York because of the internet. They're everywhere. That generation, that post-millennial generation, what are they calling them now? I don't even know.
1: Generation Z or something. Is that it? I think, or yeah. I think Well, that... they're amazing. Because I think genera- I think the
2: millennials are great. You know, I'm Generation X, and we were better than the one before us. And the millennials. <laughs> the most maligned generation, like no generation has had to eat more shit than the millennials have, you know? And I love them and they're great. And then the generation after them is even better. So, you know, I get really discouraged and I get frustrated and then I just have to sit and think, it's going to be okay. You know, like the whole, the great, you know, one of the trillion great quotes about Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And every so often there's a check and we go back a little bit and there's a long way to go. But I really, you know, that's the good thing that you know younger people there are more decent young people and i don't say decent in that they have to agree with my my, my theories on economics and whatnot i mean decency as in not misogynistic not racist not you know homophobic transphobic whatever just cuz that's common decency that to me that's that that's 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 an apolitical thing to treat everybody you know equally and that generation is you know gives mm-hmm. me hope gives me a hell of a lot of hope and we need it you know that's the long answer to your question
1: no that's a fantastic answer yeah
2: things are you know if i live through this if we all live through this that next generation is going to be i mean that's exciting man it's exciting i I just i can't wait to because i love Siv's daughter she's a great kid that's the funny thing too i was talking the other day about like wow you know here was this kid i used to babysit when she was like four years old and now she's like this young adult and she can talk to me about things and has these opinions. She's an actual human being now with like, that's really smart and really well-educated. And just, it's, you know, when you see that, it's...
0: What it's, music does she listen to?
2: She listens to a bunch of stuff. I, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to, you know, 15, they, they, they go yeah, back. Yeah, and, she's really into like, um, she's really into uh, my chemical romance and, and I guess like what's called now emo She's funny because I know emo is like, to me, emo was DC 86, 87. Like, right to spring. Right to spring. Yeah. And embrace. That was emo. And then all of a sudden, the term, I was like, wait, no, that's not emo. <laughs> no, emo is what happened yeah, in DC at that period. Yeah, was, yeah. she, how does she okay. feel
1: about World Be Free? Who? Bella? Yeah. Oh, I'm
2: sure, so. <laughs> <laughs> she's funny about it because, yeah, she's not into hardcore. I don't think so. She's come to shows. Yeah. She's come to shows and she's, she's a great kid. She's like, I'm so proud. You know, I'm proud of my dad. And, you know, she's, but it's, yeah. But Yeah, I think she's, that's, that's what she's really into, like like Ema. But I'm sure she's into a million different things. Because she was really a couple of years ago into classic rock, and I was so happy about it. And just really into the Beatles. And I'm like, yeah, that's your bass. That's where you start. That's good. And then the good thing is, if that's your bass, you go forward and you go back. Because, yeah. you know, like through Be- the Beatles and the Who and Led Zeppelin, I went back to the roots music, to the blues, and, and I got into jazz. And then I got into real deep, deep Mississippi blues, like the you know, Sun House and Charlie Patton and uh and book of white and all these guys and uh so to me that's you know that's a good that's a good foundation the beatles
3: were you guys to get back to like the early days of the band Mm -hmm. it's kind of connected to this were you guys like taking lessons and Um, [3] stuff like because i listen mm -hmm. to those records and i'm like it sounds very live and raw but then it's like some really good playing um, I never took a bass lesson.
2: I took a couple of guitar lessons when I was when I was really young. Walter's completely self taught. Luke is self taught. Alex is self taught. But this is really funny because um, when we started doing the reunions, and I was relearning the songs, I just remember sitting with Walter, and I just said, "You hooked me up. This is such bass heavy music." <laughs> I just it, Walter's such a gracious, incredible person. He's like, yeah, you know what, Arthur? Back then, you were the only one in the band that knew how to play. So I was like, fuck, I got to write these songs around the bass. (laughs) (laughs) And he meant that, you know, and uh, which is, you know, that's a nice compliment, especially, you know, because the thing is, any kind of a musical compliment coming from him means a lot to me because he's not just one of my dearest friends. I have immense respect for him as a musician. Uh, He's actually become an incredible, he was always a good guitar player. He's a better guitar player now than he's ever been. Yeah. Like if you saw the, did you see the last quicksand? Yeah. He's holding it down. Yeah, for sure. Or like even in Dead Heavens, he does like most of the leads.
1: Yeah. He's he's a really fine it's guitar
2: player. So he's had an, an ear. He knows what to do.
1: So what was, and maybe we've talked about this before, but so he was involved in writing Set Your Goals. Yeah. What? How did that work exactly? Because I feel like this has always been incredibly confusing to someone who um, wasn't in Okay, Civ.
2: so the way it happened was we were all doing other things. And I was doing, I was in Handsome at the time. Uh, really? Yeah. I was in Hanson. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It was because uh, I auditioned. Did you for, tour with them? No. Okay. Okay. What happened was they had this bass player, Eddie, and um, he, he, for whatever reason, Eddie's since died, I believe, but uh, for whatever reason, he wasn't in the band for a while. So, Petey Hines, uh, I auditioned for the band. And so I was playing bass, and they, we had this guy from Florida singing. And so I was doing that. Sam was doing. Sam was, was doing a couple of bands at the time. I forgot what else. And Walter had Quicksand. Siv wasn't doing any music at the time. And Walter just had a notion. He's like, you know, let's let's just do this this 7-inch. And he wrote two songs. He wrote the song at 2 Brute. And then he wrote Can't We One Minute More. And he's like, let's just do this 7-inch. Let's have let's have Siv back in the, in the spotlight. And, and that's all it was supposed to be because we had all had these other projects. So... We went and we recorded those songs and then our friend Marco Siega that we knew from Jackson Heights growing up, he wanted to strike out on his own. He had been an assistant producer and wanted to strike out on his own. So he wanted to create a, like a video resume. So he had this idea for the video, which was the, what it became, the talk show. And he, he basically called in every favor he had and he got use of Kaufman Story Studios for a day. So we had the day and, uh, we invited all of our friends. So everybody that's in the audience is is a, is a friend of ours. And uh, you know we went through the storyboard of, okay, Armand, you're going to be this character. You're going to be this character. And our idea was get a 60s suit, look mod. And I was like, okay, that's easy as fucking pie for me. I have a vintage 60s suit, of course. I've got the sunglasses. I'm going to jack the base up like John Antwesso. So we all showed up that day. We did that video. That video made its way to Scott McGee, who was managing Quicksand at the time. Scott McGee started so- showing it to people at record labels so suddenly several record labels were saying we okay we want this band remember this is like the mid 90s when they were signing yeah, everything yeah. they were, were signing about that. i mean <laughs> it was it was i felt at the time like we're pulling the biggest heist yeah all these hardcore kids are now post-hardcore kids and we're all on salary to this label or that label and that's when the 90s was so fun for me you know paying this pittance for rent on a salary, I'm touring, I'm living the life, I'm waking up at the, at the, at the crack of dusk, going out, <laughs> drinking for free, getting the best drugs, and like, you know, but uh, anyway, so, then it, was, then it was a matter of, well, this could be something serious. So, Walter started writing the record, and we decided we were actually going to do a band. And then, you know, I left Handsome, they got Eddie back, um, Sam left his band, Charlie. And of course, Charlie was a natural a natural choice because he was living with Walter at the time and Charlie Outface was done so he didn't have anything and uh it was funny because Siv was really against calling the band Siv really yeah and he agreed to it only when it was going to be a seven inch but then he was stuck with it <laughs> yeah, yeah. well of course he said he said how does this make me look I, mean, I look like i Bon Jovi or something yeah. like,
3: you know that's what was so awesome about it though I know I thought it was kind of <laughs> cool like this like oh I know that guy yeah from like this hardcore band oh now he's on MTV. Yeah. That was weird. <laughs> like, that was really, fuck? really
2: weird. Because I remember MTV actually there was another band called were they called Compulsion? They were from Ireland. And they had done a video that was a similar story. And MTV called up Scott McGee and said, You need to get that record out because this video is ready. And we're putting it on hold because we want to break Civ. And uh I remember the first time it was playing on MTV and then it got put into the buzz bin in heavy rotation. And uh, I remember the first time we heard ourselves on the radio, we were on the Warp Tour in Atlanta. We were in a cab. It was uh, Charlie, Sam, and May, and we had had a few. And fucking Sammy, we're in the back of the cab, and uh, the song comes on, and Sammy, like, leans over. The poor cab driver is kind of startled. It's <laughs> like, this is my band, this is my band, this is us, this is us, can you turn it up? And the cab driver's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of like a, was never supposed to be. It was never supposed to be a, a, a full band. And I remember Walter writing the songs while he was on tour with Quicksand. <laughs> Shit. Now he would just email them to us. He was on tour with Quicksand and uh, he would write like a song or two a day and he would put it on a little mini cassette and he'd mail it to Charlie. Charlie would get it. And he'd be like, okay, here's the next song. And you could hear, I wonder if these recordings still exist. I wonder if Charlie has them or somebody. It's him in the back lounge of the bus, of the bus playing his guitar Without an amplifier and whispering songs in, you know, I think about you know how Jane Wheedland wrote "Our Lips Are Sealed." She did it with a tape recorder when she was in London, and uh, she sang it, whispered it because like people were sleeping. And that's and you know every day, hey Charlie, hey, I got another, I got another tape. So it's like Walter.
1: choices made or something, and it's on like this little tape. I'm sure all those songs.
3: That's how he <laughs> that's said he wrote so them on the quicksand
2: tour. Yeah, yeah. And then he came That'd back. That'd be and,
3: awesome to release. Uh, it would be funny. <laughs> scenes yeah was, like, brilliant <laughs> yeah. but uh
2: yeah and then that that became an, a full album that was a lot of that was a lot of fun to record that record was a blast because that's the time that i was i mentioned before where walter was doing manic compression <laughs> then finished the managed compression sessions and the Siv start uh, set your goal sessions would start and so he just basically lived in fury studio it's kind of like i just realizing now well, that's kind of been walter's mo all along bite off more than you could chew just keep doing things And do so much and leave no time for yourself. Yeah.
1: It also helps to be really good at writing songs. Like, a lot of people, no one could really pull that off. Do you know how many
2: songs this guy's thrown away? No, I don't. I don't either. But I do know (laughs) that there are songs that he's just... Walter does this. This is a Walter thing. I'm rubbing my chin if anybody can't see. So Walter is... Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a good song. I don't know, though. I don't know. And I'm not in any way making fun of him. I'm amazed by him. Because some of these songs I'm thinking of right now are just such, they're so perfect. They're such perfect, catchy pop tunes. And, uh, and I love working with him. He's a lot of fun. Cause he gives me a lot of latitude. It's like, yeah, just, and what I love about him too, is I trust him so much. If I'm doing something on the bass and he suggests something else, I will, I'll, uh, I'll, um, you know, listen to him because he's, that's the other thing. He's an amazing bass player. A lot, not a lot of people know that. Walter is an incredible bass player. He just, he knows music he knows what every instrument's supposed to do and you know it's it's that's why it's such a pleasure working with him he could be you know he knows what he wants and that's the way and and bands work really well that way i think you know i mean i remember reading an interview with shane mcgowan and i think in the, the creative process he was right the best bands had like dictators you know which is so funny In contrast to what I was saying before about politics, a band should be a democracy in terms of where's the band going, what direction are we doing, but when it comes to songs, everyone needs to subordinate their ego and just whoever writes the better song. Like I know that if I did a band with Walter and we had 10 songs, probably 10 out of 10 of his songs are going to be better than mine, and I'd be happy with one of mine being as good as anything that he would write. And that's the whole thing. It's like, do you want the band to be the best or do you want to stroke your ego and then the band shits the bed? So um you know he's it's you know he's he he, i marvel at him and anything he does you know dead heavens is a great band yeah they're really really good Um, anyway enough of my my panegyrics to walter i could go on forever
1: what about what about arthur what are you doing kind of musically now damn i'm doing nothing and it's kind of driving me crazy yeah i'm practicing yeah. It's funny too. Cause I, I was, went to one of your, when you were doing those open mic nights in a story, I went once. Oh one. God.
2: My God. Those are,
1: it was amazing. I, I was like, yeah, I, I was like, we went up there. I went up there with Jamie and yeah, none of I these remember. people knew who they were just saying, hey, Walter to some, or Arthur to some guy in the neighborhood. <laughs> and you yeah. just playing songs acoustic. <laughs>
2: Yeah, those are I should record those songs someday. Yeah, I thought it was good. I have about 20 songs I've written. Some of them are pretty good, but I need to I have and like I've I've done them on GarageBand, but my voice is not. It's not a lead singer's voice. I got to find somebody who can sing them because they're cool. They're like very different and I just wrote a bunch of stuff. But uh I that's one thing I like, but it's funny too because um I just realized, you know, you can always be a better musician and what I'd really love to do, thing I'd love to do more than anything is do like a S- Motown soul thing. So I'm like going now and like just playing along with Jamerson. You go right to the to the source. That's some hard shit, <laughs> dude. He he did it with one finger. It's mind blowing. Because then you, okay, you play the bass line and you're like, okay, it's not that hard. But what made him think to do this? He's such. I mean, well, you think about the influence of Jamerson, John Paul Jones, Paul McCartney. Yeah. Paul McCartney was like invented rock bass playing, right? And he's like, it's Jamerson. It's all Jamerson. That's it. Yeah, it's,
3: it's, yeah.
2: It's like you can't go very wrong if you're going to copy one bass player as, the, on a, as an electric bassist. You can't go very wrong copying James Jamerson. Talk about
3: melodic bass playing too. I mean,
2: well, that's what he did. It was so different. Before Jamerson, everybody was just kind of approximating what the upright did, and they were doing the thirds and yeah. the fifths, and that's great. And what I love is that when I when I write a bass line throughout my life, and I'm not in any way equating myself to Jamerson, but it just kind of felt like this kindred spirit once i learned about him and how he, he approached it that he he was the first to incorporate melodies in just like every so often throw the melody in and um you know i mean you listen to a bass line like uh you know you know where to run to oh the God. bass line in that and it just repeats but it's just so freaking brilliant or like uptight stevie wonder that bass uh, line, yeah. sick that song it's just <laughs> unbelievable so it, uh,
3: reach out yeah reach out that yeah. bass line is
2: what was the other one? I listened to an isolated track the other day, and uh, is it I'll be? That's a out. Yeah, yeah, that's there. it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. I'm that saying Oh insane. my god! I know. Right? He said the greatest thing, which is so funny. I saw. I read an interview with him from about 1970 or so, and uh, <laughs> they asked him about his gear. What do you play? Play a 1962 precision bass that I bought in 1962. Okay, cool. <laughs> what kind of strings do you use? Well, comes out of 1962
4: Precision Bass. Yeah,
0: yes! <laughs> That's
1: amazing. Yeah.
0: There was one... There's an old story about one of these guys.
1: I've Ooh, never seen Brad look so excited, about He changed the his
0: strings and fucked up his bass sound, and he had to go get the old strings Yeah, the, 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 it was a funk was machine. One, I think it was one of these Motown guys. The funk
2: machine, he, yeah. the dirt... He never, wa- he never cleaned the bass, you never were- cleaned the strings. Yeah, the dirt was the tone. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were flatwounds. Yeah. Why would you ever change flatwounds? No, Unless to. they yeah, absolutely yeah. rust. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Do you know that one of his bases went up for auction last year? But it's not, what? it's not the Funk Machine. It was his backup base. He did use it. It has been used by Jamerson, but it wasn't that main 62 right. B base that we How always see. How much say. did it go for? I, they didn't even say they, they weren't even putting up a price. I don't think. Wow. It was just going to be like. Don't insult us. It's like, I played a 1945 Martin D45 once. I used to work at Manny's Music and I went to Rudy's Music across the way. I was friends with the guy who, um, Gordon, worked in the acoustic department. Great guy. And we used to have lunch together and I went in one day. He still works there. There, Rudy's moved down to Broom Street. But this is when everything was still on 48th. And he's like, Rudy just got a 1945 D45. And I was like, shut up. He's like, I'm not supposed to show it to anybody, but I'll be cool with you because he likes you. So I went in the back. I, I strung the, strummed an open G, G chord and I was like, that's it. I'm not even doing anything after this. What? I'm not even worthy. This tone was incredible. So I asked him, what is he asking for it? And Gordon just said, he's like, no, he's not. Anybody who's going to bid on this is not going to insult him. In 1945 D45. I'm like, well, he's going to be asking. It's got to be going for at least, this is more than 10 years ago now too. It's got to be going for at least 70,000 back then. This
0: fucking thing, Jesus! Yeah, Stradivarius.
2: It's I mean, nineteen forty-five D forty-five. It's like you know, nineteen you know, nineteen fifty-four Strat or a nineteen fifty-one P bass. I almost bought a fifty-one P bass. The guy thought it was a fifty-two, and he was for a fifty-two. He was asking very little. And do you know Davide from Orange Nine? No. I was with David, and Ar- they used to have this music uh, instrument uh, show down in um down on avenue a and i think around 10th street back in the 90s and i went with dov and we're just looking around and i'm like oh wow 52b bass all original second owner never had anything but flat one strings no fret like the wearing. telly bay? yeah like the
3: telly style yeah
2: butterscotch blonde completely original everything stock and i forgot what he was asking but i was like that's on the low end so i look over i look at the serial number and i'm like dov come here it's like what i'm like dude that's a 51 he's like yeah how do you know i'm like i know Fender serial numbers <laughs> I was like, that's a 51. You do know what that means, right? That's a massive difference. Like, 51 was the first year. Those are the first precision bases. Just that, I mean, the 52 could have been a better instrument if you had two yeah, of them, but the 51 is going to be worth yeah, more because yeah. it's, it's a piece of history. And I'm like, I can't do this to the guy. I can't rip him off. <laughs> I can't fucking, he's like, what are you, fucking crazy? I know that guy. He's a piece of shit. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. And I didn't pull the trigger. And I'm actually glad I didn't because I got into some weird times after that and i probably would have sold it for even less and i'd rather ne- never owned a 51p bass than owned one and let it get away yeah, yeah that's <laughs> it was better good. to never have owned yeah exactly <laughs> exactly because you don't know what you're missing
1: all right that was a fun one Whew. i mean
0: this is one of those podcasts I looked over, you know, at like 17. I looked over at the clock at 17 minutes. I'm like, "Fuck, seventeen minutes. he said so much already. <laughs> like, is he going to be able to keep going? <laughs> yeah. And yes, he did keep going, and where we ended this podcast was not the end. It actually there's a there's a lot of gear talk after. There's about eighteen minutes of gear talk afterwards. here tonehead. Uh, you go over to uh, patreon.com slash going off track. And you can join up, join the team. Um at any level. There's a few different levels of commitment, but it doesn't I've, take much to get the uh to check out the outtakes and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. If you wanna support the podcast and hear those outtakes, you can also hear bonus episodes, get it early. I I never wanted to own a p-base till talking to arthur yeah. and it's so infectious and now i'm like i think i need one not only not only do you need one but you need a a 51 yeah right? <laughs> I, gotta, I need a 51 i know it's so elusive how could you not have one oh my god yeah <laughs> lo- that would change my life um but yeah thank you thank you to arthur check out his his latest band world be free with uh with sammy um and also with scott vogel from terror and uh Slugfest, Despair. Check. So they put our a record a couple years ago. That's great. Members of Judge, too, I believe. Um, and one of the members is from a band called uh, Envy, who are a very, pretty obscure band from Buffalo. I used to see growing up a lot. Anyways, uh, but yeah, if you want to support the podcast, please donate to our Patreon. If you want to do a one time thing, you can go to Venmo. I was going to say Vimeo. Go to venmo.com <laughs> slash off track. That'll go straight to Brad. who will probably get it to us um you can also that's where a-
0: all the beer comes from it is
1: yeah because like
0: that it's easy for me to just transfer that to my own that's great
1: yeah i haven't been drinking this month uh but i'm gonna make <laughs> up for it at some point <laughs> um but uh also yeah can we get organic snacks or something hell yeah whatever you want man. all right i like that <laughs> um you can also leave us a nice review on itunes um that is always helpful or you can just tweet at us at going off track and uh like I said, we're working on doing some new social media stuff. So I don't know. Maybe you're sick of social media. I'm pretty sick of social media. <laughs> I think it's the last thing probably anyone needs. But, uh, but
0: this will be uplifting social media. This
1: will be uplifting social media. Not the media. other kind. Yeah.
0: So maybe we need more of that.
1: Yeah, we need more uplifting stuff. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, thanks to Arthur. Thanks to Pulse. And uh, yeah, I guess. What else, Brad? Thank you. Thank you, the listener. <laughs> and thank me, me, Jonah. Yeah for what oh man you do so much all right <laughs> what else am i gonna do wouldn't be here without you wouldn't be here without you brad i, I would be recording that. this on like a digital recorder and it, do, would sound it might, be terrible. might be enough for some people it might be enough <laughs> for some people but not for going off track no way it would not be going off track without you all right we will be back next week with another another podcast so see you then